Welcome. Have seen me around that much. I'm normally locked in the corner over there with the youth, having quiet, contemplative, thoughtful time. Well, ish. Um, but so I'm I'm not used to this. Is the first time I've I've preached here at East Site, so it's very exciting. So you're kind of like the guinea pigs. Um, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I thought I'd just do it like a youth session because that kind of works. And so if you've been in one of my youth sessions, and there is actually somebody here who has, you may remember we always start off with a bit of a recap, don't we? And I'm lazy, so I don't do recaps by telling you stuff. I do recaps by asking you stuff. To the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Good afternoon. It's very nice to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Mike. Uh, you might not laugh. So, we're in the middle of a series. We're actually, we're nearly at the end of a series. What's the series on? Hosea. Hosea, fantastic, which is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, who's it written by? Hosea. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Okay, some of the books of the Bible, it's not always as obvious. That one, dead easy. Hosea, written by Hosea. This is how I do the youth questions, just to get them warmed up. Then we sort of hit them with something a bit harder. Chris, when was it written? Very good, you see, and he knows that because he preached earlier in the series and you have to look up that kind of stuff and remember it. Rachel is now worried because she also preached earlier in the series and thinking, oh, what's the next question coming up? No, you're right. Um, it was written somewhere 750-ish years before Jesus was born. Can anybody tell me what kind of book it is? It was. It was a story about Hosea and his wife. It starts off with that. So it's got some personal story, some, some biography in there, but then it, start, it changes. What else is in there? What other sort of writing is in there? Prophecy. The book is a prophecy. It's the book of the prophet Hosea. And actually a lot of it is written in the form of almost poetry. It's very figurative. There's lots of things being like other stuff, lots of illustrations and examples, some of which take quite a lot of unpacking. And that's what we've been doing in this series. Who was Hosea talking to? He was talking to the Jews. He was talking to a specific chunk of them. He was talking to the two tribes of Israel that lived in the northern part of Israel. And he uses all sorts of different words through the book to talk to them, talk about them. He sometimes calls them Jacob. He sometimes calls them Ephraim and all sorts of things like that. That's who he's talking to. What was he talking about? I mean, he's a prophet. So he's, in one sense, he's delivering God's message to people. And like many prophets, that message is a message of where things are now and where they're going to be in the future. But what he did, he talked a lot about disobedience to God. But actually, the whole way through the book, all the way through his prophecies, although he talks about all sorts of different things, what's happening in his life, what the Jews are doing, what's going to happen, the thing he's actually talking about the whole way through is he's talking about what God is like. And as we've gone through this series, what we've been doing in each of the talks is trying to explore what God is like. Because the thing is, reading a book that was written 750 years before Jesus was born, so that's like nearly 2,750 years ago, I mean, it's interesting, 
but it's hard to make it feel relevant. But if we're reading a book about what God's like, and God's here now, and God said he was the same yesterday and today and forever, then suddenly that means stuff to us right now. So let's just get a quick think about where we are with with these tribes and what's going on and what the prophecy is saying. Hosea has come, God sent him to prophesy and talk about the future to this group of of Israel. What did the future look like for them at this stage? It didn't look great. In fact, it looked pretty bad. We know, because we know the history, that they are just a few years, when Hosea is speaking to them, they are only a few years away from being completely overrun in a military invasion. Their cities would be destroyed. Men, women, and children would be killed or taken, into capt- taken as captives. That's going to be a really dark time. And Hosea is preaching that this is coming, and it's full, his book is full of dark terrible warnings about the consequences of Israel's behavior, about what happens when they've turned their back on God. And and I have to warn you quite seriously now that the section of Hosea we're looking at today is chapters 12 and 13 is probably some of the toughest part of one of the toughest books in the Bible. This is the culmination of these prophecies. There's almost a desperate urgency in the message that God is trying to get across through Hosea because he doesn't want this to happen. But that desperation means that he speaks bluntly and powerfully. And we're going to look at a little bit of that warning today. And that means we're going to talk about difficult and painful stuff. We're going to be talking about death. Because that's what the book talks about. But Hosea isn't just talking about destruction and ruin. Hosea is also talking about God. He's telling Israel what God is like, which means he's telling us what God is like. And, you know, I, I think actually that's why the book ended up in the Bible. Because the history stuff is fine. There's lots of history that isn't in the Bible. This bit's there because it speaks to us about what God is like, as well as warning us about what happens when we fall away from him. So a quick reminder, there's been lots of things in this series we've talked about. Rachel's talked to us about the God of mercy. Chris talked to us about the God of redemption. We've heard about a God of judgment, a God who is faithful, a God who brings discipline and direction to us and who loves us with a father's love. That's what the God Hosea is preaching about is like that's what this book is talking about next week Daniela is going to finish the series off talking about a God who welcomes us home but in this section in chapters 12 and 13 we learn about the God of resurrection we're not going to read the whole of chapters 12 and 13 because it's quite long um Do look them up after the service and have a read through. I'm going to give you a quick summary of a couple of the key points now. So chapter 12, in my NIV study Bible, it's got a subheading, Israel's sin. And that's pretty much what it talks about. It talks about the stuff Israel is doing that's just wrong, where they've turned away from God. They were cheating and defrauding each other, hoarding the money, boasting, Not just about how much money they've got, 
but boasting that no one was going to catch them out in their wrongdoing. No one could call them out. And all that time, they were ignoring God and ignoring the prophets that God kept sending to them, saying, come back to me. Don't do this. That's what the overview of chapter 12 is, except for the first bit. Because the first verse of chapter 12 is a bit weird. The whole chapter is talking about Israel's sin. And the first verse talks about lies and violence and then says, this is reading from it, he, that is the people of Israel, make a treaty with Assyria and sell, send olive oil to Egypt. So the chapter's headed Israel's sin, and right at the start, they make a treaty with one neighbor, and they send some olive oil to another. And you're kind of going, what? Because it then goes on to talk about the lying and the cheating and the defrauding people and the boasting and the hoarding, and you kind of go, yeah, I get this, this is sin, I see where this is going. What's all this business with the Assyrians and the Egyptians? What's, what's that doing there? It doesn't make sense. Actually, that verse is hinting at the absolute root, the core of the problem that Israel have got. Ever since God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he's been saying the same things to them. He's been saying to them, I love you, I am with you, trust me. And he says that all the way through the journey. You can follow it through the stories of Moses and the Exodus, then all the way through Joshua and coming into the promised land. It's the same message again and again and again. I love you. I am with you. Trust me. It's even in the Psalms. It's written there. Psalm uh, 20 verse 7 sums it up, what it's like when Israel gets it right. It says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of of the Lord our God. Their journey, that story, proved that Israel did not need a big, powerful army because Israel had God on their side. Israel didn't need the armor and the equivalent of tanks, chariots, uh, to be mighty in battle because God fought and won their battles for them. Which means Israel didn't need to lie and cheat and deceive to sign alliances with other nations. They needed to trust in the name of God, his name, his name, his name which represents who he is, the God of mercy and redemption and faithfulness and discipline and judgment and fatherly love that we've been talking about all through this series. But instead, Israel turned their back on God. And they build up their army and they lie and they scheme in diplomacy and they sign alliances with nations that not only don't follow God, but follow practices that were appalling, cruel, all the way through to human sacrifice. And they were allying with these nations. That's what the Assyria bit's talking about. Why did they sign an alliance with them? Because they were afraid of them and they'd lost a trust in God to keep them safe. Now the olive oil bit's slightly different. Not that different. They're sending olive oil to Egypt. Why? It's a tribute. And it's Hunger Games stuff. They're sending tribute. Olive oil's one of the key crops in Israel. It's one of the things that provides food. 
It lights your home and it preserves food for times when food is scarce. And one of the things you're supposed to do if you're a Jewish family with the olive oil that you produce is you take some of it and you send it to the temple. You give it to God. And they were sending it off as a tribute overseas to try and buy some security. It's the opposite of what God is calling them to. It's the opposite of trusting God. It doesn't sound like much, does it? A bit of local politics, but it speaks to that critical issue. Israel has stopped relying on God and everything else just follows on from that. And that's where they end up in this mess because once they've stopped relying on God, they start relying on other things. And chapter 13 unpacks more of it. They turn away from God, they start worshipping other gods. I mean, they literally make them. They get all some silver, melt it down and make it into a statue. And having made it, they go, this is my God now. I've just made this thing. And they're praying to it. They're, they're, they're going to rely on that to protect them and keep them safe. Kissing the statues, making sacrifices to these other gods. Maybe even going as far as human sacrifices that they're seeing being done by the peoples around them. That's how far away they've fallen from a God who says, I love you. I'm with you. Trust me. And chapter 13 talks about the consequences of this sin, the consequences of turning our backs on God. It is full of terrible prophetic warning of destruction. The, the language is violent. The images are drought and invasion and, and plunder and families being killed, children, unborn babies being killed. It is some of the darkest stuff anywhere in the Bible. It's a warning about what happens when we turn away from God and put our trust in other things. It's talking about the wages of sin, death. That last bit, the wages of sin, that's not the words Hosea uses. That pops up about 800 years later uh, in a book uh, a letter written to the Romans by a guy called Paul. It's in Romans chapter 6. We might come back and talk about him later. But for now, well, let's talk about death a bit because that's what these chapters are talking about. I wonder when we had our little conversation around the table and we said, what are we afraid of? I wonder if we ended up talking about death. Maybe we didn't. Maybe not directly. Um, I'm not actually particularly afraid of my death. I mean, the dying bit does not sound great, I'll be honest. But, but, but after that, the being dead, well, it's a bit hard to get really, isn't it? I mean, I can't really get my head around that. Turns out I'm not the only one. Um, there's a guy called Damien Hurst, uh, who's an artist, uh, got hold of a shark, dead one, uh, and stuck it in a big tank of formaldehyde uh, and labelled it, this art piece is called, it's quite famous, a shark in a big tank, it's called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. Now, I really don't know very much about art and sharks, but actually I think he might be onto something here. 
it's hard. It's really hard. Maybe it's impossible to get our heads around our own death. I mean, I know I can't. So it's not really something that it's very easy to be afraid of. But I do fear death. I fear other people dying. I fear losing people I love. Because that's happened. And it will happen. And it hurts. I suspect most people in this room have lost someone that they love. I know I have. And when it happens, then all the kind and well-meaning words that people say, uh, well, they're just words. I mean, you hear them. You might even know them. You might even agree with them that they're true. But it doesn't really change how you feel. When we lose someone, we feel grief. And, and whether the death was long expected and maybe even, maybe even welcome release for that person from pain and sickness, it still hurts us. That's grief. And if someone dies unexpectedly, when we didn't see it coming, that pain just jumps up from nowhere and grabs us. That's grief. And grief can keep on doing that. It can keep on jumping up and grabbing us again and again, long, long after the event. I was at a party when I was 17 years old. I know, scary thought. Um, and I remember there was a bunch of us there, and one of the girls was a year older than me, her name was Helga, uh, and she had to leave early because she was catching a flight. So we all stayed at the party, and she went around hugging everyone, saying goodbye, waved her off, um, and she was heading off because she was going over to America. She was going to work in America for a year and then come back and going to head off to university. I got a phone call the following morning. It was one of Helga's close friends on the phone in tears. She was calling everyone who had been at the party to say that Helga had got on her flight. Yeah. And that flight, somewhere in the sky over Scotland, was blown up. She was on the 747 that was destroyed over Lockerbie. A wreckage landed on a town. You, you might not know the story. It's a long time ago. You'd recognize it when there was a news report on it because they always show the same image every time. There's a photograph of basically the front chunk of the plane where it crashed and it's like it's lying on its side the nose of the blue pan am 747 and they use it in every news report and it comes up every now and then when there's an anniversary when there's a, a news story when there's something changes or something happens and every time every time i see that image it jumps me straight back to being 17 and getting a phone call and the grief just jumps Straight back, even now, even, even 35 years later. We grieve for what we've lost. We grieve for the person who's gone, for all they did and for all that they'll never do. Look, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm genuinely sorry if this is hard or this is painful for you. It is, it is for me too. And look, I've cheated, okay? I've cheated. I've talked about an example, true example. It's happened but it happened to me a long time ago, 35 years ago. 
But I'm talking about that because I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to talk about stuff that's more recent, to talk about people I've lost in the last few years, like my mum, or people I'm afraid I'm going to lose soon, like my dad. I'm sorry if, if talking about this brings up pain for you. And if it's brought back your grief to the surface, well, if that's what's happened, then look, there will be an opportunity to pray at the end of the service in just a few minutes' time. I'll be able to pray for each other. If you're feeling that pain right now, don't leave today, please, without talking with someone on your table and without having them pray God's blessing and God's peace for you and maybe you pray the same for them. So why, why, are we, why are we even talking about all this hard stuff? Why does God leave all this stuff in Hosea for us to read and talk about? What? Why? I think it's because when we read these sorts of passages, we have a tendency to focus in the wrong place because we're people. So when we read stuff, we read about what's happening to the people. And we read about the suffering and the dying, and that's what we latch on to. I don't think that's why it's there. I think we need to read these passages far more to see what they're telling us about God. The people's sin and rebellion is what leads them to destruction, but God is still here, and he loves them. How do we feel when we lose someone we love? That's how God feels when he loses someone he loves. That's what the passage is telling us about. Sin, rebellion, and abandoning God leaves God feeling the same thing we experience. Loss, pain, grief. But, so why doesn't he do something about it? I mean, he's God, right? This is, this is really horrible. So why would you just put up with that if you're God? That's crazy. And of course, he does do something about it. And tucked away in chapter 13 of Hosea, right in the middle of this dark stuff, it's there. It is there if you go and look for it. Verse 14 says, I, God, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Even in those darkest passages, the Old Testament is doing what it always does. It's pointing us to Jesus. Because it's through Jesus' death, God ransoms us. We say we're redeemed. Redeeming means buying something back. God buys us back from the grave and from death through Jesus. And that's what Paul picks up. I said we'd come back to him. He picks up in a letter to Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul quotes this very same bit of Hosea. He quotes it and he writes it and he does what Paul does. He joins the dots for us. He joins the dots from the Old Testament to Jesus to us. Here's how he puts it. Paul writes, first of all, just the quote, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's quoting from Hosea. And then he unpacks it. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In the same chapter, Paul unpacks and talks about our bodies being perishable, but we must be clothed, we must be wrapped in the imperishable Jesus, our mortality wrapped up in his immortality. He uses that same letter in Galatians. We talked about it when we were getting ready for baptism. Remember chapter 3 verse 27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. It's the same image, clothed in Christ, wrapped up in him. It's such a wonderful, intimate image that Jesus is our, our clothes, covering us, keeping us warm, protecting us from everything around us. It's wonderful. Do you know what? That's another echo of Hosea. Do you remember way back at the start of Hosea? You're right. He starts off talking about his situation with his family, Hosea and Gomer. And it's a really messed up marriage. She's off sleeping with other men. And she ends up alone and abandoned and naked. And now this is the picture of God clothing us. We walk away from relationship with him. We abandon him and we end up abandoned. We end up alone. We end up naked. And Paul says we're not because we're clothed in Christ. You know what? Those same images of relationship and clothing carry the whole way through the Bible. All the way to the very end of it. All the way to Revelation and chapter 21. And that's a really popular passage at weddings and funerals. I'm going to read it in a second. But when I do... When I read this through, I want you to listen out. Listen for the images and the poetry that matches some of the things we've been hearing about all the way through Hosea. Talking about husbands and wives, of brides and grooms. A bride who's not abandoned or naked, but who's restored and beautifully dressed for a wedding. Listen to the recognition of death and grief and the wonderful assurance of victory over death that God has won for us through Jesus. Listen for words of true comfort to all of us who mourn and grieve. So I'm going to read Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Jesus redeemed us with his death. Jesus' resurrection gives us the victory over death. Jesus has repaired and restored the relationship between God and us. Jesus will wrap himself around us and clothe us. Jesus will wipe away every tear. 
Jesus is making all things new. Shall we pray for a few minutes? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we do not need to fear. You've redeemed us. You have the victory over sin, over death, and over the grave. And thank you that you understand our pain and our grief. And that one day you will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit here now. Comfort those who mourn. Touch the hearts of those who don't know you. Call back those of us who've turned our backs on you. Come and do your work. Bring your blessing. Give your peace. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.